may be seated. You know, we're able to, we're able today to be able to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus because of what he did on that cross, the sacrifice that he paid. But we're also able to celebrate and then be in public and praise him and raise our hands and celebrate our faith because of what men and women have done. And that's what today, this weekend stands for, uh, for Memorial Day weekend, for those that paid the ultimate sacrifice. Um, I came across a video clip that I just want to share with you guys before we start the morning. Let me have anyone who has served our country, please stand for us. Please stand. Anyone in this room, please stand. And I want you, yes, yes. Remain standing. Remain standing. Please, remain standing, please. Okay. Thank you. And men, and men, could you just, and ladies, please remain standing for a moment. Anyone here who had a family member that served our country? Anyone, if you have a family member, please stand. Wow. Look around this room. Thank you. I mean, I, I know you've all heard freedom isn't free, but it isn't. Thank you to all and to your families for the sacrifice that you, that you have all made for this country and for the freedom that it now offers us. So with that, Pastor Jeff. <laughs> Thanks, brother. 
Oh, it is a good day. It is a good day to be out of bed. So uh, it is a good day. Let's open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this morning. <clears throat> I thank you for my precious friends. Thank you for all those, as Paul alluded to, that served our country. Um, Lord, we just can't, we cannot uh, say thank you enough. Uh, Jesus, you said it, uh, no, no greater love had a man than he lay down his life for a friend. And, of course, that was looking forward to his death on the cross, which is the ultimate sacrifice. But, uh, Lord, all these other uh, sacrifices that have been made on our behalf, Lord, we're grateful. Lord, will you be with us this morning? Will you uh, empower us to listen to your word somehow, some way? Father, we are so grateful to be able to gather today. I know many are leaving and uh, after this week, this weekend, and so forth. I know we just pray for their safe travels, Lord, that they'll have extraordinary summers, that they'll stay connected with us in various ways through live stream, as many are already now. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is a great thing to be out of bed, number one. I have never been in bed that long. Uh, I felt so ashamed. Um, I, I was just doing some stretching the other day, and all the lactic acid build up in my legs from just doing stretching, and I was wobbling around a little bit, but I said, no, I'm gonna, I really want to preach today, so I was excited about it. Uh, this seems like such a small thing, especially in light of uh, many of your sacrifices for our country and all the pain and people losing their lives. My thing doesn't even rate on the scale, uh, but suffering is suffering. And as I alluded to in, the, in my little missive this week, you know, when you suffer, <clears throat> I, I'll tell you this, I will never enter a hospital room the same. It's not that I didn't have empathy before, but having spent some time in the hospital and uh, with Laura when she was in the hospital in December and now uh, with my issue, uh, it just, it can be a dark place. It really can be. And, and many of you, I know even within the sound of my voice, I know there's a few people that I know by name in the sound of my voice that are suffering 24-7, chronic pain, just un, unmitigated pain. And, of course, that can take the form of emotional pain and spiritual pain. And, and, but that physical suffering is difficult to get through. So, again, our hearts go out to you, uh, many of you who may be here uh, even suffering. And so, um, but there is something strange, there's something paradoxical about suffering. The Bible actually does not say uh, Christians will always be uh, moved away from suffering. James says, actually, count it as joy. And Peter goes on to say, actually, arm yourselves to suffer. Uh, those are strange things. And, and in some ways, three weeks ago, we also know that Satan does sometimes have access granted to our physical bodies. And I, I've never regretted preaching a sermon more than I did that sermon three weeks ago. <laughs> little did I know, little did I know. But uh, <clears throat> it's been, uh, it's, uh, I'm just overwhelmed by the love and the, of the community. Uh, many of you have told me you've prayed, and, and uh, I feel, again, I feel uh, a little ashamed that I received the attention of so much prayer when so many of you need prayer equally or more so than I do. We all need prayer, obviously. Uh, but uh, it's, it's just part of being a community, isn't it? I, I, I really did wonder this week. I, I, I was trying to imagine what the same exact experience I had gone through would have been like outside of community. And I didn't want to go there. There are many people that suffer in silence and have no real significant connections with people in and around them. Uh, one of the reasons Jesus went to the cross was that he might build his church. 
And the church is a glorious thing when it's functioning effectively as a community. Many of you may be suffering and, and, you know, well, nobody knows about the suffering that I have. And again, this is a shameless plug for just being involved in, see Pastor Paul or Mary afterwards about being in a small group, uh, being somewhere where people know your name and know who you are and recognize when you're not here and recognize when, uh, you know, you are suffering. And that's so important that we can stay connected. So uh, for that, I'm appreciative. Are you ready? It was funny this morning as uh, Tess and I were coming here, I mentioned something and I said, Tess, would you pray for the service this morning? And about halfway through the prayer, she said, Father, uh, dear Lord, pr- please pray that my dad does not forget how to preach because it's been so many weeks. So that too has been my prayer. So uh, I, I hope that's the case. I was thankful for that. Uh, you be the judge of it afterwards. So anyway, let's go, uh, let's go back into our exploration of the book of Ephesians. I'm actually going to revisit the same verses that we looked at, for, that I looked at. And by the way, before I go on, last thing, Paul, you did a great job, great job. You know, getting the chance to uh, watch live stream is, is a good experience, but it's better being here. I will tell you that much, so Paul, great job. We looked at Ephesians chapter 6, and I want to look at these two verses this morning, verses 11 and 12. It says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand, something I am happy that I am able to do today, firm against what? The schemes of the devil. Now, this is a, this is a very strange, this is a very strange verse for many people when they first come across it. They, they have some idea that there's evil and there's good in the world and they can kind of see that. They might even go as far as to say there is a spiritual forces behind this. And they, they, maybe they don't go as far as to say the angelic realm and the demonic realm. Maybe that's a step that they just can't take, but they do sense some power out there that is clearly not human or super, it is supernatural in a sense. But to go as far as to say that Satan actually has schemes that are set against us, that doesn't mean the devil, by the way, he is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at the same time. He is not like the Holy Spirit. He is a created individual. But he does scheme against us in a larger sense. And there is a, a demonic realm under him, and we've talked about that at various points. But just to think that Satan has a scheme against you and against me, is a sobering thought. Some will just write it off as being absurd, but it is a sobering thought. Uh, It goes on to say, our struggle, notice our struggle. We are in a struggle. We are in a battle. Coming to Christ is both a protective, eternal protective covering that's unbelievable, but we are left in the world. We have one foot in the world and we have one foot out. And Jesus said, in this life, you will have many tribulations. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you if you're a follower of Jesus. The world's hated me, it's going to hate you. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness. Talking about the age that we live in against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. First of all, the unseen realm, we talk a lot about it in here. If you're new, we welcome you too, but the unseen realm is a powerful realm. But again, it can be mocked when we can't bring the empirical method, uh, the scientific method, if you will, to bear 
on unseen forces. And as a result, what we do is rather than holding them equally as equally important, both the empirical method, which I love, it gives us iPhones and all kinds of things that we have and medical advances and MRIs of which I've done many over the last few, year, over the last few weeks. It's an extraordinary thing to go in and be able to say, they can, this machine can look into your body and see all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's just amazing. So the empirical method is not uh, something to be shished away. I mean, science is a beautiful thing, but in and of itself, it only gives us a very small picture of the, the totality of the picture. Working together in synchronicity, they work beautifully. The empirical model is the sole model to discover truth is, quite frankly, an absurdity, and it is. Listen to a guy, Robert Jastrow. He's a, he was a NASA... Um, physicist. He was a planetary physicist. He was a NASA scientist and an astronomer. Uh, Robert Jastrow said this. I find it compelling. He said, astronomers, astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on earth, and they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I would, or any else, anybody else would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Pretty fascinating. He goes on to say, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason alone, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance and he is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself up over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there waiting for him for centuries. I love that. It's a great, stark reminder that science doesn't get us to the end of things. Why are we here? Who are we? Those fundamental questions that you really, ask, you really have to ask in life if you want to have a life well lived. And they finally climb up thinking that they have gone back to the very beginning, that moment of creation. And again, there's the theologians saying, where have you been? So I, I think about the schemes of the enemy, and it's, it's really tireless. It would be a tireless task. I'm going to break it down in the end to three overriding categories. But as a preface to that, what I'd like to do is just give you some things I think about when I think about how Satan schemes against me, things both I've felt in my own spirit and things I am very well aware through the Bible uh, that make clear that Satan has schemes. Number one would be simply carnality. Now, this would be the sex, drugs, and rock and roll mentality. Uh, it's living in the flesh, which really just means impurity. It's fleshly appetites, passion, sensuality, temporal, worldly leanings, if you will. Kind of the seven deadly sins, I think we could look at. Pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony. Wrath and sloth, kind of those seven deadly ones. Carnality is just you being driven by your appetites. Now, you would think, well, that's sin. Most people kind of close the door once they touch that. They said, well, this is sin. It's drinking. It's drugs. It's, you know, liking the things that you, you like, and you should not like them. And, but you're drawn towards them. And, 
But in fact, uh, I find it interesting that in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, who, that was known as probably the most carnal church that we know about in the New Testament church, it was a port city, there was all kinds of unbelievable prostitution and everything that were going on, and a lot of the people had been saved out of that, but they were still struggling with it. And I don't, I don't have it to come up here, but I just want to, I find this fascinating. The beginning of his letter to the Corinthians, you would think, because he's about to chastise them for their carnality, but look how he starts out the letter, 1 Corinthians 1. It says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus by the will of God and, and Sophonies, uh, though my brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Jesus, cleaned up in Jesus. Well, he's about to chastise them for all their carnality. Saints by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Our Father. Not my Father, and you should buy into this. Our Father. And Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. And, and then he goes on to say, your testimony concerned Christ was confirmed in you. This was a carnal group. And that you were not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly and... He goes on. I mean, just an amazing start to, you guys are unbelievable. I just want to encourage you. You've been sanctified. You're part of the family. Our Father, our Father, we're part of the same adopted family. That's one way that he starts, and it's almost like, well, this is a carnal church. There's a lot of problems here. But then there's another church that he writes a letter to, to the Galatians, and we'll see it in a minute. And he has no such warm greeting. He just immediately starts chastising them. For what? Their legalism. They, had, they were trying to go back to the law. He, there was no, oh, you wonderful saints, you beautiful church, I just love you. He did love them, but he got to the point immediately. Nobody was drinking, drunk, and uh, sexual escapades. There was none of that going on in the Galatians church. They had just returned. The purpose of the letter was that they had returned to the law, and we'll see that in a minute. So carnality is a cancer on any of our lives. It's one of those things that we suffer, one of those things we suffer from violently when we began to indulge the flesh. But on the list of sins, we would put it number one, and I don't think it's necessarily number one on the list. It's certainly something that God opposes because he wants your well-being. But it's not at the top of the list. God looks towards the heart. And there are those that have sanctified hearts that are shooting in the direction of God that may struggle with these fleshly appetites. But that is certainly a scheme against us. Anyway, he can pull us down by moving us back into, us, into the pig pen is something that he schemes to do in all of our lives. And there are none of us that are exempt from that in those appetites. We are creaturely people. We are both... His, his children, and we are still in a body, and that struggle will go on as long as we are on this earth. There's no excuses being made here, by the way. It's just a reality. Number two, he loves to scheme against us through condemnation. So here's Satan. He likes to play both sides of the fence. He loves to pull you. Oh, this is not going to hurt you. You have the right to this. Come on, just, just continue down this road that of maybe it's a sexual affair that you're having, uh, maybe married or unmarried, outside of marriage, you're, you're engaged in it. Like everybody does that. Come on. You, and you just hear that little subtle whisper, that little hiss. You hear it. And then once you're there, he then turns immediately and begins the process of condemnation. 
Satan's scheme against the church is to condemn you. Many of you are here this morning, and the reason you weren't able to enter into that last worship song really fully is because you feel so condemned. How can you worship a a God when you feel so condemned by him because of maybe some struggles that you've had in the carnal world? I find that amazing. Listen to the language, Mark 16, verse 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Who who are those that are being condemned? Those who disbelieve, those who say, I refuse to believe it. And yet, in Christ, we know it well, Romans 8, 1. For thou, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, we could, we could unpack what it means to be in Christ, and clearly if you're living uh, with a practice, settled disposition to continue living in sin, uh, that's a problem, and you're not living in Christ, and to be living in Christ is another issue, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that means for those who are cycling and saying, yeah, today wasn't a great day. Father, at the end of the day, Lord, would you forgive me? Lord, I'm asking you to cleanse me. You know, 1 John 1, 9. I mean, I just pray, Lord, that you would just, the attitude I had today or what I, I, the things, the thoughts that were going through my mind, and you can escape that condemnation, don't live in it. The only reason you're living in it is that you either don't trust the scriptures or you don't know the scriptures. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Satan loves to do that. The third thing I would say is that he loves to minimize sin in general. Now, notice when he's condemning you, he maximizes it. But he loves in general, especially those people who don't know God, he loves to minimize sin. The whole idea of sin for our world is anathema. I mean, the idea of sin. I was listening uh, this last week to Deepak Chopra, which I'm constantly interested in, not because I think he is a guru of any sorts, think he is an angel of light, but I think much of what he teaches and talks about is satanic. And they say, oh, those are strong words. Why? Well, I could, I have a long reason why. He talks about Jesus and interjects Jesus at various points and cherry picks some of the things that Jesus said. For instance, Jesus said, the kingdom is within you and talks about that and then he'll bring that up, but then he'll mix that with Buddhism and many strains of Hinduism and and all the other things that we see and he's embraced really by a lot of people in our culture and he's a smart guy, he just is and he, he knows a lot about physics and he talks a lot about science and he actually has a doctorate and so he's enticing, but I was listening to this, he said this this week. And it gets to this issue of there is no sin. Listen to what he said. Commenting on the eight paths of enlightenment as he was doing this talk on PBS, espoused by the Buddha as the right perspective, this is what he said. And he was, he was applauding this. He said, the only right point of view is either no point of view or embracing all points of view. And I want you to think about that for a second. I want us to break that down just for a second. So you've got to understand, the movement here is away from judgment. It's away from the cross. See, what the cross does is it yells out judgment, God's judgment on himself on our behalf, a vicarious death on our behalf, judgment of our sins heaped upon himself. It's an amazing thing, but it still screams wrath and judgment. 
It does. And sometimes we don't like that. We like a world where there is no judgment. If you can just be, if you can just settle yourself into a place where you can breathe no judgment, never judge, never, never even in this way, never even get a real point of view or embrace all points of view. It sounds good. It's like a siren song. Oh, that sounds delicious. If we could just, yeah, if we could just all get along and love and not be judgmental. There are elements of that, of course, that are part of a gospel community, not to judge our brothers. But to move away from judgment in its totality is actually absurd to me. I think about this for a second. He's making a categorical statement that you should, if you want to think rightly, then embrace no view or all views. What he's just done is, however, br- embrace a particular view. He con- he, it's a contradiction already in its own terms. He said, this is truth. Embrace no view or embrace all views. That's what you need to do. Well, that's a view. And it's not all views, but it is a view. So already, just in thinking about it, and he goes on to say, adapt that mantra and your life will flow with effortless spontaneity, word for word. I had to stop, back up, write it down as I was in bed this last few weeks. Uh, this is the kind of things I get to do when I'm in bed. Uh, but I'm thinking about you. And so, and, but he said that, adapt that mantra and your life will flow with effortless spontaneity. And then they, they cast a, a little camera out on the crowd and, and, and the crowd was just, oh, yes, yes, that's so right. It's, it's, adopt no view or all views. And I just thought at the foundation of that is, you know what it is? It's a response to the idea of sin is what it is. There's no sin. We just need to be enlightened. If we can, there's not, it's not an issue of sin. It's an issue of not being enlightened. And many religions embrace enlightenment. And they do away with the notion of sin. It is a scheme. I will tell you, it is a scheme of the devil. And as I alluded to, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, no wonder for even Satan comes as an angel of light. Look, Satan doesn't always have to come being the guy with, you know, the Rambo look to his eye and shooting everybody up and trying, you know, blood and guts going everywhere or sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sometimes he can take the form of someone who comes speaking deep and powerful truth and light and trying to give us a way in which to live that skirts the issue that we all know deep down to be true that there's something fundamentally flawed on the inside of me. Now, you can get away with that for a while, and you can live in that world, but at the end of the day, you'll go crazy thinking that because it is, it is inconsistent, and there's so much cognitive dissonance that goes on in our own heads when we try to imagine that we are just virtuous people apart from God. It's a challenge. Now, again, the flip side to that would be what? Legalism, another scheme against the devil, as I alluded to. By the way, what... Deepak didn't realize that he was doing, or maybe he did, but what he was doing is he was obscuring the cross. People love to talk about Jesus, but they, very few people like to talk about the cross. It obscures the cross. Paradoxically, the flip side, that's falling off on one side of the horse. There is no sin. The other side of the horse is, oh, there's sin, and we're going to do everything we can in our own power to avoid everything. And let me just tell you, you've been, if you've been part of a church like that, that is the worst place in the world because a legalistic church will suck the life out of you. 
You should go into any faith community that bases itself in a gospel culture, and you should feel love. If you don't run, I'm just telling you, and I would say the same thing about Church at the Red Door. If you don't feel the loving presence of God, and it's all about we're just the we're the ones, we're the right, we're, we're in the right because what? We don't do all these things. Look at all the things we don't do. And criticism and judgment within the community of faith that happens that way. Look, there have to be issues that are addressed. I'm not saying this is just a free-for-all, but love is the defining characteristic of any real Jesus culture. You need to understand that. Legalism will suck us dry, I'm telling you. But embracing religion is a great hiding place for Satan. Always has been. There's a secular social psychologist that I uh, have, have, have read before. He's not a, not a follower of Jesus, obviously, uh, th- that I know of, uh, at least by his writing. Jonathan Haidt, some of you may know, he's, he appears on TV periodically. He wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. I find it interesting. He says, religions are social facts. Now, he's looking at religion in general uh, as, a, as a social uh, psychologist. So he's trying to understand why religion exists and, and he also brings politics into it and why we fight and all that. And this is deep, deeply inculcated in our own DNA as we grow up as children, etc. That's the premise of the book. But he writes this, religions are social facts. Religion can't be studied in lone individuals any more than hivishness can be studied in lone bees. Durkham's definition of religion makes its binding function. Notice, it's binding function. In other words, he's seen religion as something that ties people together, that binds them. A religion is a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things. I would agree with that. That is to say, things set apart and forbidden. Beliefs and practices which unite into one single moral community. So he sees religion as being its primary thing is that we come together and we decide these are all the things we're not going to do. Yay, wouldn't you love to be part of a group like that? We're not going to do this and we're not going to do that and we're not going to do this. And anybody that comes in and tries to do those kinds of things, we're going to throw them out as fast as we can because we are the righteous ones. The reason this can be so deceptive is because, again, what does it do? It obscures the cross. What it says is that if we work hard enough at this, if we give it the good, good old college try, if we really, really work to be good to not be bad and to avoid all those bad things out there, we will be somehow approved by God. It's very dangerous. And let me be clear, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. And yet, if we were to go out here and go to the little fair over here that they have at College of the Desert or somewhere or a street fair over here and ask, what do you think? What? And people, whether they would define it like that, they would go, that's a group of people that are just unwilling to embrace life. They're going to take all these ancient things, say you don't do this and don't do that, and somehow that unites them in this big stew of boringness and boorishness. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. But it is a tactic. Galatians 3, 1 through 3, as I alluded to, this church that was struggling with this very thing, they wanted to return to the law. And Paul said this, you fools, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you 
Now, that's an interesting language, by the way. It's, the roots there are witchcraft. Can I just tell you, and I learned this from Derek Prince many years ago, and I believe it to be true. When you have authority that is illegitimate, gospel authority, and that's usually given by God, and it's driven by love and service, not ruling it over people. Jesus said, that's the way the Gentiles do it. Our kingdom is upside down. Your leaders are those who serve you, who lay down their lives for you. It's a whole different kind of a kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. And, but when you get illegitimate authority and people begin to put all these constraints on people and begin to have a legalistic culture, what happens is every time witchcraft comes in. Now, you say witchcraft. That's, that's so weird. The very essence and the foundations for witchcraft are manipulation, coercion, domination, and intimidation. All those things are what witchcraft at its core does. It is a power play to get other people to do what you try to get, want them to do. At its core, that's what witchcraft is. And if you feel an environment where you feel dominated, intimidated, or manipulated, I'm just telling you straight up, it's not a gospel culture. There's illegitimate authority there, and they are being bewitched. That's what he's saying here. I believe that's an accurate view of what he's saying. He said, before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Notice, it's obscuring the cross. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or just being great people because you're not doing all these things? Or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Strong language. They were much more religious looking than the Corinthian church, but the language is much harsher. In fact, if you go back and look at the ministry of Jesus, it seemed like he was always letting in the nasty people and throwing out the good people. If, you're, if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the most religious, punctilious people about being good there were on the planet, if your righteousness doesn't surpass theirs, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. And everybody's like, oh. Then that counts me out. And then he turned around and said, please enter. The, the foundation for the gospel culture is I'm a sinner. I'm, I, I do sense that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. My wiring's bad. I need a savior. I don't need a cheerleader to cheer me on to, to be better legally. Are you following me? And that's a scheme, and we have to be cautious. And then lastly, I would just simply say, and this is certainly prevalent within, much more prevalent than ever in the history of mankind, certainly since the, you know, the Enlightenment era the, with Voltaire and all those guys hundreds of, a few hundred years ago, and that is this new atheism. There just is no God. I just don't believe in God at all. And uh, it's a growing category, certainly in the West today. And so we have science now and reason, and so we don't need to buy into all. It kind of flows out of that first um, uh, start that I had. Richard Dawkins, a well-known atheist, says, No known culture lacks some version of the time-consuming, wealth-consuming, hostility-provoking rituals, the anti-factual, counterproductive fantasies of religion. I'd love to go on a cruise with him sometime. No. Uh, and then again, back to the righteous mind, Jonathan Haidt. It's interesting. Uh, just bear with me. I, you may not catch this, but let me just give this because I found it fascinating as I was reading his book this last week. Again, the first step in the new atheist story, one that I won't challenge. Notice he's not speaking as a Christian. 
is the hypersensitive agency detection device. Now, he's going to describe what that means. In other words, he's going to say, this is why people believe in God. Okay, you ready? This is why they believe in God. The idea makes a lot of sense. We see faces in clouds, right? In fact, we were coming this morning. We saw some clouds, and Tess was commenting on those clouds. But never do we see clouds and faces. Wow, your face looks very cloudy today. Because we have special cognitive modules for face detection. The face detector is on a hair trigger, and it makes almost all of its mistakes in one direction, false positives. That is, seeing a face when no face is present. Rather than false negatives or failing to see a face that is really present, similarly, most animals confront the challenge of distinguishing events that are caused by the presence of another animal, an agent that can move under its own power, from those that are caused by uh, the wind or a pine cone falling or, or anything else that lacks agency. If you want to see the hypersensitive agency detector in action, just slide your fist around under the blanket with inside of a puppy or a kitten. I would, I would suggest puppy. Kittens will attack. Uh, they will attack. And, and if you want to know why it's on a hair trigger, just think about which kind of air would be more costly the next time you're walking alone at night in a deep forest or a dark alley. The hypersensitivity agent, agency detection device is finely tuned to maximize survival, not accuracy. In other words, you know, when we, when we look and then we see the things like an animal sees that, we would know that's a fist. But at our level, it'd be something else. We walk in and we hear a creak, and then, then there's a whole show on the paranormal because somebody hears a creak in, a, in an old deserted, you know, house uh, that was in an asylum. You see this. It, it just it litters the airways today, these paranormal shows about people running in and getting these detectors and going into old, you know, abandoned haunted house looking things and, and calling up spirits and everything. And they would say, see, that's just the hypersensitive. That's our, that's our fist under a blanket for human beings. But in the end, they're not accurate. They're just silly. Because why? There really is no God. So the scheme of the Satan is just, he would love to say, well, there is no God. But Jesus made it clear, you're either worshiping Satan or you're worshiping him. Now, that, that really is offensive in our culture today. But you'll remember the religious, of John, uh, the, religion, uh, the religious folks of John chapter 8 came and just simply said, Jesus said, Abraham's our father. We, he said, no, 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 your father's the devil. And they were very religious. It is a scheme. So now I'd like to talk in closing about three things. We're going to talk about three categorical ways in which Satan tempts you or schemes against you, and then the three lies that support him. Okay, you with me? Everybody hang on. Do we need to do a seventh inning stretch here? Everybody okay? I may need to, but all right, here we go. 1 John chapter 2, 15 and 16. It's a well-known passage. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Stop for a second. Can I just have a little sidebar with you? One of the things that I know happened to me over the last month, and again, all I can tell, I can't, I can have you come up and give your testimony and tell about your experience. All I have is my own experience, and I'm the one talking, so I'll tell you about my experience. Not because it's more important, but it's just, it's all I've got. It's all I've got. I mean, I can read about yours and ask you about it. But um, I can tell you this, what, what God did do in my life through suffering over this last five weeks, being in bed that long is just an arduous task. Some of you have been in bed for six months or a year or are 
permanently bedridden. I can't imagine the suffering that you go through. It's so challenging. But I will tell you that it, it dampened my appetite for the world. It just did. I mean, you can talk about anything you want, but when you suffer, you're like, I just don't care about that car or that vacation or that or this or that. I just don't, I just do not have an appetite for the world anymore. Can I ask you a question? Is that bad? Listen to this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That didn't mean don't love your family. It doesn't mean don't look out at a great sunset and worship God or love your community. That's not what it's talking about. When it's talking about world, it's talking about this present darkness, all those things that accompany people who reject God, fall for the schemes of the devil, and live for the world. It's the next trip, the next cruise, the next this, the next that. It's just whatever I can put in front of me, uh, the next drink, the next meal, the next whatever. It's all fleshly appetites. We have to eat. There's not more. I I hope I enjoy lunch today. This is not some dampening party, but do you live for it? And I couldn't eat. I couldn't this. They they gave me morphine and this and that. It didn't touch the pain. It was horrible. I was in the hospital. It was a bad, dark Time. I can tell you, I wasn't thinking, oh, I just love the world. I'll tell you what I was thinking. I was thinking about the next world. I was thinking about the new body I have on order with two good feet. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, It's not from the Father. It is from the world. And who is the God of this little planet down here? Satan himself, part of his scheme. So we see the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Now, what's fascinating to me about these three categories is you can see in three primary ways in which temptations happen biblically. We see the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, and we also see the temptation in the Garden of Eden. And both these three primary categories were used in those assaults of temptations. The temptation of the garden, the temptation of Jesus, and they all, they, all, they all configured themselves around these three primary things. So Genesis 3, 1 through 6, let's read it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast in the field. Do you understand what craftiness is? Again, witchcraft is part of that. Crafty, manipulating, intimidating, coercing, and trying to dominate you to fall into his pathetic little rebellion. That's the scheme against you and it's at its essence. He said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the tr- fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Well, first of all, it's already been twisted already. He didn't talk anything about touching it. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took and she ate and she gave to her husband and he ate as well. Now, notice the tree was good for food. That's what she saw. Well, what is that? That's the lust of the flesh. That's carnality. I'm hungry. It looks good. My body's saying, eat it, eat it, eat it. It'll be great. It's just simple, basic, fleshly appetite. Two, it was a delight to the eyes. It said it right there. It was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes. 
for whatever reason. You know, there's some things that I just not necessarily I crave them. They just look so good. And they look, if I had that, I would be, you know, I'd be great. It, my life would go well. And then finally, the boastful pride of life. He said, it's desirable to make one wise. You can be like God. And you can boast about it. You're, you're a created being, but you can rise up and be like God. If you notice, that's exactly why Satan fell. He wanted to be like God. We don't have time to get back into it, but Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, both chronicle Satan's fall. And now let's think about the temptations of Jesus. So we have all three, all three categories right there in the garden in lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Now we have the same thing with Jesus. So when Jesus goes into the wilderness right after his baptism, so if you'll remember... He comes in, he, he, he began, he's about to get baptized. John the Baptist says, I, I can't baptize you. I, I have need to be baptized by you. And he said, no, do it to fulfill all righteousness. The Holy Spirit descends. And the Bible says, and the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. Wow. Luke 4, Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led around in the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. I would have become hungry a lot longer before that, by the way. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus said, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Well, what do you think that was? Lust of the flesh, just a fleshly appetite. And uh, also a tangential thing there, prove yourself. You, God, will do this. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. There's no evidence, by the way, that that's not true. Satan did have the power to hand over worldly authority to Jesus, and Jesus knew it. That wasn't a lie. That was true. And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus said, it's written, you shall... Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Lust of the eyes. Look at all these kingdoms could be yours. And he, and he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands he will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, and when he had finished the temptation, he left him until an opportune time. He wasn't finished, but he went through those three categories, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. By the way, this last one, you know, just prove yourself. Throw yourself down. Show the world. Boast about it. If they know that you've been thrown from, down from the temple and an angel swoops down and protects you from hitting the ground, your fame will grow Think about how you can boast and show yourself to the world. Again, all three categories are covered. All three temptations are covered. Well, in closing, what are the three lies that undergird these three temptations? There are always these three, and I believe this to be true. You can't trust what God says. Remember when they were in the garden and the very first temptation ever uttered, and we've talked about this at various points, but was what? What is the same temptation we get today? Has God really said that? Has God said that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? I mean, notice the very first temptation chronicled in Scripture, has God really said that? There is an assault today like no other time. There's been, there, through the history of man over the last 2,000 years, there's been a massive assault on this. Either to, oh, we worship, we worship, but then nobody teaches out of it. 
or they pick and choose or this or that or they try to throw it out of the schools or this or that. And I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying there is an absolute full-out assault on this book, and there has been for 2,000 years. And it basically comes down to this. Has God really said that? And many would say, of course not. That's just man's invention. Mythical man, you know, living back in the dark ages, you know, coming up with these fanciful, you know, fairy tale, you know, little fairies running through the forest, and they, you know, it's the, it's the puppy under the blanket thing. They just come up with this stuff. Has God really said that? And then two, you really can't trust God's character. He knows on the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Don't trust God. God's holding out on you. <laughs> Why would you want to become part of church at the Red Door or any, or any Jesus community? Why would you want to do that? He is holding out on you. You're going to be miserable. You're going to be around a bunch of other people that are miserable. All the anti-this and anti-that and the, you know, and uh, we're stereotyped in many various ways. And Jesus said that. The world will hate you because you testify that its deeds are evil. That's what he said about himself, and now you're going to go do the same thing. By the way we live and the community and the love and the grace, the grace, not the legalism, the grace where we can continue to love one another when we fail. That kind of community, that's never was, now it's never how Satan positions it. He said, but you cannot trust God's character you cannot and finally you just cannot trust the grim future that God has planned you just can't he wants you to be subservient he wants you to you know be a slave and just serve him and never recognize your full potential Maslow's hierarchy of needs he never wants you to fulfill any of that he didn't want you to self-actualize he wants to keep you way down here that's what he wants you to do. Can you hear the hiss? It's always been the same. In other words, Satan wants us to make the same idiotic mistake he made. Imagine that a created being can rise up against his or her creator and somehow be like them, rival them in their omniscience and their omnipresence and their omnipotence. Somehow? It's an absurdity. He knows his fate is sealed. He'd prefer to take as many people with him as he can. And therefore, he schemes against you. Follow me. Follow my lead. In closing, Paul simply says this to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. Listen. He says, you know, I'm really afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, by his craftiness, his witchcraft, his manipulation, domination, intimidation, your minds would be led away from, catch this, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus, to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you've not accepted, you bear this beautifully. He said, here's my concern. It's not, he's not, he did not say, here's my concern. People are going to want to play golf on Sunday morning and not come to church. That's not what his concern was. People are not going to, you know, give enough. People are not, no, no, no. Here it is. You ready? My concern is this, is that you're going to fall for the same three pathetic temptations that Eve 
and Adam fell into based upon those three lies. Can't trust God, can't trust his character, and you cannot trust his future for you. He does not want you to reach your full potential. People are going to be deceived in that way and move somehow away from two things. You ready? The simplicity and purity. It's both simple and it's pure. You want to change your life today? I'll tell you how you do it. Devote yourself to Jesus. Let me say that again. You want to change your life today? Maybe you've been coming to church for 30, 40 years, 50 years, but you say, could you say in a court of law, would it, ha- would it hold up in any way that somehow, yes, there's plenty of evidence that this person was devoted to Jesus, both simply and purely devoted to Jesus? That was Paul's concern as he closed down this letter to this carnal, crazy ch- church in Corinth. I'm just, boy, my heart just breaks. You know, when I pray for you, as a church, that's what I pray for. I pray just for that simplicity and purity of your devotion. That's what I pray for for my kids, for my wife, for my close friends, for, for you as my close friends and community that I love so much. I pray that somehow we would not be deceived into buying into that pathetic failed rebellion from thousands of years ago. Don't listen to... Don't listen to Deepak, Deepak Chopra's view of Jesus. It's incomplete and it's inaccurate. Don't li- there are a lot of Jesuses out there. There's a Jesus in Islam. There's a Jesus in Hinduism. There's very few religions ever do away with Jesus. They take him as a prophet. They take him as something. But they don't take him as the key central focus. And they also very reluctant to embrace the cross of Jesus. Does that make sense? So that's how I think of schemes. Much more could be said, but we've got to stand firm. Next week, prayerfully, I go back to L.A. for some more tests and appointments and all that crazy stuff this week. I plan to be back with you next week, and we're going to talk about how do you then stand against these schemes? What do you do? And we'll talk about the full armor of God next week. All right? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Again, I thank you for all those that have laid down their lives Uh, that for our country, Lord, we're so grateful. We never want to forget their sacrifice and the beauty of what they did for us, Lord, we're grateful. But Lord, even more so than that, and I think all would agree, Lord, we're thankful for your sacrifice on that cross, the epicenter of church at the red door. What allows us to be a loving community is that we are centrally focused on not only Jesus, but Jesus Christ and him crucified, buried, resurrected while we are church at the red door so lord we thank you i thank you for uh, all my community here i thank you for their prayers their generosity of spirit their compassion and lord i just pray that we would be able to direct that kind of compassion towards everyone in our community that suffers not just me because i'm up here and more visible lord but we would extend that same kind of love and grace that was extended towards me towards everybody that ever walks in that door and suffers Lord, we thank you for this day. We worship you, and we also thank you that it's 75 degrees right now (laughs) and not 175, and uh, we're grateful even though we know it is coming to an end. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Great to be back with you. We love you.